Welcome, Spocklighters. It's Spocklight, but not as you know it. For one episode only, it is Miami Voice. Do not adjust your radio. It is Spotlight Presents Miami Voice, a long-gestating project to cross over the worlds of Star Trek and Miami Voice. It's and a I backdoor pilot pool. Say what it is. This has been a passion project of mine, trying to get a Miami Vice podcast off the ground. We will never be able to do it, but we have our perfect inroads today. We have George Decay, who created in one episode in Miami Vice, giving us a way in to, to cross over these two franchises. We found a way. Life finds a way. Spotlight finds a way. Miami Voice finds a way. As always, there is a Star Trek connection. You better believe it. This seems to be the only really main Star Trek connection from five years of Miami Vice, right? I believe so. I have not watched the last two years of Miami Vice. I have I finished off with seasons three. Uh, so one to three it is sort of held up as as the golden years of Vice. But yeah, we can go into more of that in a minute. But I think, you know, what I thought would be really interesting to start with, actually, is just to see what people from Star Trek actually slummed it on TV in the 80s. I would say slum it, but like, who used their newfound, like, pop culture cachet of being in a run of Star Trek movies to get some television work? So to see, like, you know, who, like, basically appeared in the most and who basically didn't go at all. Can anybody guess who did the most episodes of TV in the 80s. Now, I'm going to discount Shatner because, of course, he had his own show, TJ Hooker, as everybody knows. Oh. 90 episodes. I would, I would so say who it's, got to be, it's got to be someone like Leonard. Mr. Nimoy just schlocking it around. Although he would have been directing, wouldn't he? So he would have yeah, been very no, busy. He was a director in the 80s. So, you know, he, he was a classy guy. Mm. I mean, I know he appeared <laughs> in an episode of TJ Hooker, um, which, and, and this yes. is the thing, right? I'm hoping that this will be the first of many little visits to the world of TV outside of Trek because there's loads of little I thought you were going to say a visit to TJ Hooker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Next, TJ Hooker light. Well, you've guessed Leonard Nimoy, but then you're kind of like, yeah, you're going back on that. So, shall I tell you? You can tell it, us. It is George Decay. Oh, that is George. Television appearances, yes. I could read. There's Matt Houston. It was an oil saga. I thought you were going to follow like, what the hell is Matt Houston? Wait, that's the name of the uh, show. Uh, yeah, General Hospital, two episodes. Yeah. That must have been a two-parter. Like, must have kept him on dialysis <laughs> or something. A show called Story Break. Uh, a MacGyver. Johnny Quest. I did not know Johnny Quest was this old. Yeah, and I made a guess for Johnny they Quest. They brought it back in the 90s. So the one that right. we remember is the 90s one. I was going to say, that's what I remember on Nickelodeon. Anyway, uh, Murder, She Wrote. Got to see this one. Um, that one called I can't even read my own handwriting <laughs> Smurfs there's Smurfs as well <laughs> and one other I can't actually read it but 10 he's just 10 plugging episodes his total. schedules between Trek movies with as much TV as he could cram in I mean like hats off to the guy his yeah. murder Second... she wrote episode uh, was the same year the same year as this Miami Vice episode second place I believe is James Doohan who also appeared in MacGyver uh, Danger Boy, Sarah Noir, which I think is a Canadian soap opera, given he is Canadian. Uh, Hotel, and but this is the most interesting one, Fantasy Island. Scotty oh. went to Khan's Island. Khan himself. Third, got 
Leonard Nimoy, he was in four episodes of uh, TV, TJ Hooker, of course, but Marco Polo, Sun Also Rises, and Fairy Tale Theatre. Then it gets then it gets a little thin here. We've got <laughs> Nisha Nichols did one episode of Head of the Class as herself. Um, <clears throat> oh, Walter Koenig did Bring Him Back. Oh, some some episode. I don't know. Again, my handwriting's <laughs> shit. Ladies and um, gentlemen, you join us in week six of quarantine. We are coming to you live from our houses. This is our first remote record, and in case you can't tell, we may have gone a little wooky. Yeah, and then finally we got William Shatner who did one episode of Police Squad. Yes, of course. Yeah, I remember so that. he Cameo was the well. yeah, it was a brilliant one. It's Poisoned Man, Ray Bradbury Theatre, and then a, and then he did two couple of TV movies. Um, and then somebody was zero. Oh, that was DeForest Kelly. He stayed classy. Like just did the five movies. Uh, Donald TV. Yeah. Four movies. Four movies in the eighties. You know, all Star Trek. Nothing else. I guess because he, he weren't making any westerns then. Well, of course, he did appear in one episode of TV, Encounter at Far Point, the pilot of TNG. How old do you think I am anyway? 137 years, Admiral, according to Starfleet records. Explain how you remember that so exactly. I remember every fact I'm exposed to, sir. I don't see no points on your ears, boy. But you sound like a Vulcan. No, sir. I'm an android. Almost as bad. I thought it was generally accepted, sir, that Vulcans are an advanced and most honorable race. They are, they are. Damn annoying at times. Yes, sir. Well, it's a new ship, but she's got the right name. Now, you remember that, you hear? I will, sir. You treat her like a lady. And she'll always bring you home. Of course, yes, yeah. There you so go. That's, that's actually, that was probably a I big payday show for him. He didn't have to worry um, about doing it. Oh, they probably had to pay him the big bucks. Well, he seemed very happy to do it. He did a, like a tour of the sets. No more cheap outside locations. Star Trek: The Next Generation builds every set from scratch. Stage sixteen is the biggest set on Paramount's lot. The sets here are much sturdier than the cardboard, foam, and tinfoil, which sometimes held our sets together. There's a bunch of kind of TV series, TV episodes that involve major Star Trek people that I'd love to explore because uh, Shatner did what is considered to be uh, the best Columbo episode where he was the murderer. Uh, also, there's the episode TJ I've seen Hooker. that, yeah. Yeah, episode TJ Hooker with Leonard Nimoy guest starring. So you've got Shatner and Nimoy together. Like, and you've got so you just... Third Rock from the Sun with Shatner and there's yes. McKay as well. He's the big giant head in uh, Third Rock <laughs> from the Sun. Um, and of course, Shatner ended up being the lead in uh, Boston Legal as well. You've got Scott Backler and Quantum Leap. There's loads of stuff. So I think there'd be some really yeah. fun stuff to have a look I think, at. I think what you're saying, Liam, is that we, you know, we started our spotlight at the movies branch. And now this is like a dive into TV, but you can't really say Star Trek on the TV because there's a lot of Star Trek on the TV. It's called Star Trek. So this is just diving in <laughs> via the medium of Miami Vice to spread our wings through the works of Michael Mann and some 80s glorious TV as well. Spotlight down the tubes. Down but the Miami tubes. 
But yeah, like you say, we, we're kind of subtitling this episode Miami Voice because that was your idea, Paul, for a title for a Miami Vice podcast, which is an amazing title for a Miami Vice podcast, I've got to say. Thank you, thank you. I, I think we did put some context on like why we like love Miami Vice so much. It was the summer of 2006 when oh. the movie was about to come out. We were seeing those teaser trailers, so the Jay-Z, Linkin Park, like, mash-up, getting the pulse racing. You understand the meaning of the word foreboding? As in badness, is happening right now. And I think it might have been you that bought the season one box set of my advice. I think you were tempted by the... The um, beautiful 18 certificate blazing on it, and you're like, yeah, oh, this must I be know. hardcore. Um, at the end of 2005, teaser trailer for Miami Vice, the movie, came out, Michael Mann's kind of own reboot. And I remember we saw the teaser trailer, and we thought this looks like the coolest thing ever. I mean, we were absolutely kind of hooked on Michael Mann at the time. And yeah, this trailer came out and it ended with Jay Fox saying, smooth, that's how we do it. And we were like, oh my God, this <laughs> yeah. is gonna be the fucking coolest yeah. thing ever. Yeah. Yes. And I went ahead and bought the box set of Miami Vice, the TV series, the first season, because this was a really weird case of Michael Mann was of course heavily involved in the original TV show. He was one of the executive producers, kind of helped shape the show and now he was actually getting to make the feature length big screen reboot of it which is a really rare thing it's not often that happens at the original well it was not, wasn't his one. idea it was um jamie fox like at a party for ali i think was saying like you know when are you going to do my voice like you know i'm, I'm going to be i to be tubs you know oh, i think okay. there was a massive number of like um tv reboots like big budget like starsky and hutch and yeah um that made they were make, always taking others, but, like, more of a satirical turn weren't they whereas yeah this, this played is, it like this totally is, you know straight. dukes of hazard it seems like i'm yep. in the 70s for like you know big screen adaptations but this was the one that like was going to be done completely differently mm. you know you had bad boys too there's a mammy set like two cops you know kind of thing completely different only to this movie like but it was sold to be like bad boys free you're right i mean it is it is completely different because it's very much at the tail end of that big surge of big screen remakes of yep. 60s and 70s 80s tv shows like the mod squad starsky and hutch the saint all those charlie's angels of, yeah charlie's angels all those movies and yeah like you say they were all kind of quite tongue-in-cheek and then miami vice comes along which could not be more serious it's not really the show and that's the one thing that put, that put a lot of people cold is because you know we yes look at this Season one, you get in the box set, and it's quite light in tone, but it's also got some really hardcore moments. It actually blends the two quite nicely. Mm. You know, you've got um, the show starts with uh, Tubbs, Ricardo Tubbs, who's like a New York cop who has brothers killed in a, in a botched kind of stakeout in New York, and by a drug dealer called Calderon, who like then flees south to Miami, and like he goes in search of revenge, or crosses paths with Sonny Crockett, aka Sonny Burnett. Uh, easy, easy undercover name, but like he was undercover tracking somebody else. They kind of like find out they're each other's the cops, and are like working together on this case, to try and bring down Calderon. And that's how they get to meet, and that's the pilot. It sort of ends in a pretty good shootout down at the docks, uh, and so Tub sticks with Crockett, and they begin their TV career. The first season was really ahead of its time. There was it was like MTV Cops was the pitch that Anthony Yerkovich, the creator, like had, 
a man really embraced like the pop music of the era, like and using it in really dramatic ways. There'd be sections, you know, action or all kind of like um, montage sequences, sets of music, you know, just let the music drive the drive the action really. And then you also had the look of the show, which is man's kind of cinematic eye, which is all the pastel colors. You wouldn't want any like reds or something in there. It's um, you know that whole kind of production design was you know his stamp on the show, and that's kind of what gave it its unique selling point and was like nothing else on TV. It's weird you mentioned the um, MTV Cops tagline because yeah, I was just thinking it is totally. There's loads of sequences in Miami Vice that are very much the uh, Rocky Four No Easy Way Out montage style yeah. Yeah. of uh, storytelling where you you literally are kind of music video within a narrative. Like you said, I mean, this was so groundbreaking. The idea of um, taking you know hugely popular um, hit pop songs of the time and using them to soundtrack TV shows, and, and now that is you know big business. Everything like that is a huge deal uh, for musical. Well, he artists. made Phil Collins cool, so like yeah. he could do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for he, a while. and he really did because that sequence in Brothers Keeper, uh, which is the two-part pilot. For me, that defines the show. So this is a sequence where Crockett and Tubbs are driving towards a big kind of showdown climax. And it's all soundtrack to Phil Collins in the air tonight. How much time we got? 25 minutes. so filmic so cinematic mm. and although uh, Michael Mann did not direct that pilot it, it definitely or any has, episode of Money Vice yeah he, he didn't direct any episodes of it but you definitely feel as if his influence 
is there over the visual aesthetic mm. of the show, the actual director... Would you, say, would you say that this show heralded in a new era for TV in the way that the late 90s was kind of the beginning of a new boom of stuff like Sopranos and then the golden age that we're in now started a few years later? Is this kind of like, do you think, the start of leaving the 70s way of thinking of to do TV behind and leading because it because it is episodic TV but like you say it's got a real cinematic quality to it there are two parties in there uh, it's really dark and violent and stuff for, for, especially for the 80s I think it's difficult to say like because it's like there aren't that many um, that's right there are imitators but nothing like they could do the budget of this one the budgets were big like a million dollars an episode yeah. you know they had car chases boat chases you know it was they, they really put the money where the mouth was particularly the first couple of years um, and it has, I think, some of the highest state rated episodes were in season two, where it's kind of peak phenomenon. And three, season three, where we pick it up with George Decay, um, it was kind of like going through a little reinvention. Michael Mann's hand was off the tiller by this point. He'd kind of, he had sort of, you know, uh, stepped back a little bit from the, the Day Day Show because he was prepping Manhunter with William Peterson, uh, which is the famous kind of first adaptation of Red Dragon, um, which is awesome. I love that movie. But by this third season, like the the look had been reinvented slightly, uh, so the pastels had been dropped in favour of like a more darker look. The Moscow at midnight, you call it, which was kind of silver and sort of black greys, you know, in the suits are all a bit darker. So you know, people kind of think of the typical Mary Wise look and pick up an episode of season three. It might throw them off a bit because it doesn't quite have the same look as the first two series, and it wasn't popular the, the change with um, the general viewing public. So. By the time season four rolls around, which I've not seen, they did kind of go back on what they were doing, but they really did embrace the goofiness, which and the harder uh, core episodes, you know, were replaced with ridiculous ones like James Brown and Alien Abduction, the plot line. Oh and I think Crockett about... jump a shark on some skis. <laughs> no, I think the season the episode where they're trying to track down frozen bull sperm was probably jumping the shark. Uh, <laughs> frozen what? Bull sperm. Right. Okay. No, I haven't I think, seen I that. I think that should be the phrase. Let's let's retire we'll jumping the shark, and now it's the frozen bulls. <laughs> yeah. There are some cracking episodes, of season three, including the one we'll discuss tonight, which is by Hooker by Crook. Season three, episode twenty, broadcast on twentieth of March, nineteen eighty-seven. Uh, it was yeah. written by John Shulian, uh, who is the co-creator of Xena Warrior Princess. Yeah. This is a this is a factoid for you that I was not aware of. Did you know that another co-creator of Xena Warrior Princess was Sam Raimi? No. Oh, um, but I don't think I knew that, but I knew he had connections because it's all shot in New Zealand. I know Ted Raimi's in a lot of it. I think Bruce right. Campbell probably pops up. So his crew yeah. are involved. And I think and Bruce Campbell Raimi has connections. Me. Yeah, I think Raimi has connections with New Zealand TV and stuff. So for sure. Cause I think okay. I might, I might be wrong, but I think Bru- uh, Ash vs. Evil Dead was shot in either Australia or New Zealand as well. Possibly, but it's, oh, it's, it, he's got isn't his... she in that? Isn't Zena in Ash? Mm-hmm. But she is, isn't she? Yeah. yeah. So there must be connections. So written by the co-creator Zena Warrior Princess from a story by Dick Wolf, who obviously became like a huge TV mogul himself. And this and took episode... over Vice after Man. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this uh, episode is directed by Don Johnson himself, star of the show. Uh, this is one of four episodes he directed and it's very notable for the fact he cast his ex-wife uh melanie griffith in the um sort of 
major guest star role of this episode. Yeah. And also Melody Griffith, future wife. Well, yeah, this and is the crazy know. thing in that, like, I was watching this episode and I thought, oh, this woman looks like Greta Gerwig's mum or something. Like, she's got that kind of look. And then afterwards, I find out it's Melanie Griffith and then find out that, yeah, they were married briefly in the 70s. But then, yeah, they reconciled in 1989 and had a kid who was Dakota Johnson, actress extraordinaire. So does she, does Dakota Johnson owe her existence to this episode of television? Like, is this where they started to build the bridges again? <laughs> the, the Don Johnson, Melanie Griffith story is like a proper ABC movie of the week. It, I mean, oh my God. They, he started dating her when she was underage. Like, oh um, God. And so they've been like oh, forever sort of interwired. Yeah, so, you know, it's a bit it's a bit weird when you look into it. But Melanie Griffith's like got some real fucked up background like you know she was in that movie raw where it's like the um the home movie movie which is where they have lions on the property and like she almost gets mauled by a lion in one of the scenes i know she's in body double obviously yeah she's terrific in that that's her best performance (laughs) Uh, she's also in something wild which i really want to see uh bonfire of vanities which uh basically killed her career huge turkey and she's also in an abel ferrara movie fear city which I want to say. Yeah, I was like, what was it that really, like, how did she be such a big, well-known house of name? And it's Working Girl, opposite Sigourney Weaver and Harrison right. Ford. That's Melly Griffith became, like, breakout household name star. She wasn't having to slum it with De Palma, taking her clothes off, like, because that's what she was kind of known for. It's, like, quite a lot of nudity. Like, she would appear in lots of films in the 70s, quite young. Don Johnson's and that's what, movies, you know, by the sound of it. <laughs> but it's quite funny by the time this you know this episode is um has a quite protracted uh sex scene between don johnson and Melanie Griffith. yeah and oh my it was, god it was too hot for tv it was cut down every subsequent airing uh including on the dv so we never get to see the full i mean we didn't get to see the penetration shots unfortunately <laughs> but we've also got veronica cartwright herself yeah, like from alien, alien zone in one scene and also captain lua Bauno, like the wrestler like famous for appearing well I did I only know him from the Cindy Lauper music video Goonies Are Good Enough and <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've also got of course the, the lawyer from Jurassic Park oh yeah Martin Ferraro is he, yeah yeah is he a recurring character in the show in general yes right. yeah is he Moreno he's always got like some he's like the green grass I'm gonna reference <laughs> heartbeat again <laughs> you love well, a bit of heartbeat well, it's, it's funny you mention heartbeat because, of course, Don Johnson directed this episode, right? Now, it's one of four episodes of Miami Vice he directed. The first episode he directed was Back in the World, which is in season two, which features... Yep. Now, I do not remember this episode. Features flashbacks well, to Balaban. Crockett as a war correspondent inside Saigon. I do not remember this, right? But what it immediately made me think of is the music video to Hartman, Don Johnson's own hit single. He's playing like a war correspondent in that, isn't he? Yeah, it must have done it on the set, like, you know, borrow the cameras for five minutes. Yeah. (laughs) That episode's soundtrack entirely by The Doors, I think. Oh, really? Wow. Is it just This Is The End repeated ad infinitum? (laughs) I don't think it's got This Is The End on it, actually. It's more of a a 
five to one. But like you say, Takai is the bad guy in this episode. Well, yeah, you say he's the bad guy, and it's like he's in he's in a mere scant four scenes throughout the whole episode. I was like, I was wanting more Takai. I was like, where are you? But he he cuts a very I dashing more figure as this villainous man. I mean, I'm getting serious lethal weapon vibes from his introduction. Where you know he's introduced to like the bumbling like assassins that he's hired to kill the um, hooker who witnessed him bumping off an employee who's been filling the books, a Joe Pesci, if you will. So you let her get away. This will not be acceptable. And you know, just the way he's like feeding his fish whilst doing it, it really feels like Mr. Joshua a leaf weapon or Josh Lackland. Like it's classic. You know, you just want Mel and Danny come and shake him down. I mean, he should have been in Leaf Weapon Four because they had everybody else in it. Yeah, I mean, he really should have been in Lethal Weapon 4, shouldn't he? Because, like, like he should have been Jet yeah. Li's boss or something, is it? I mean, he should have been Uncle Benny in yeah. Lethal Weapon 4. It would have been yeah. amazing. Uh, but I guess he was just too busy recording Mulan, like, uh, voiceover we, work. We should have interrogated Dick about this when we interviewed him. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen him, like, if he got away from this episode, be more of a like a you know the top dog recurring the hang of the series yeah recurring villain who's pulling the strings of a lot of stuff going on but of course spoilers he gets gunned down at the end of this so no more to k which is a real shame because he really wears that outfit very well <laughs> yeah it looks amazing and i love that he's like knows he's going to kill them in the final scene for eight he knows mm. they're cops undercover but just strings them along with like you know tell me more about this deal and how you can help me and <laughs> so crockett and tub spend the most of the, the most of the episode trying to track down this hooker who was kind of like a witness to this uh this murder and stuff and trying to, to get her into safety and it's trying to find her and of course later on the big twist becomes that the woman who crockett meets melanie griffith she's actually a madam who's running the like brothel empire organization that this woman was working for because she gets bumped off halfway through it's a real shock yeah it is a shock and there's a really good uh push in on crockett's face mm. when he realizes he's dating a madam which is great but yeah, yeah because he'd is... already dated like a um a junkie earlier in the series played by helena bonham carter Oh. Uh, in a very early role. I mean, that's another thing. If you want to see A-list actors before they became famous, Mary Vice is the place to be. We've got Bruce Willis. I try to tell you, fellas, I got the juice. Julia Roberts. We've got Melanie Griffith. It's like the way you um, have to go back to Casualty or The Bill if you want to see British stars doing the same thing. Yes. But, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's really like a who's Even Michael Bay plays a thug in one episode. Amazing. Crockett actually says, he says, first junkie, now a hooker. He's having a, a, a bad luck with his love life. His yeah, I, I figured that would have to but, have been a reference to a past uh, love interest. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it was a good series. This one, the series three, and there's a pretty harrowing episode as well where he has a um, he's got goes to pick up this girlfriend. He's an air stewardess at the airport, and she, you know he drives back to her place. She drops her off. He's like, you know, not coming in tonight. And then you hear scream, and what's happened is she's the cocaine bag. She's been she's had to swallow his burst, and she has a massive OD straight away and he's like you know i'm gonna get the guys you know who obviously made you do this you know she's dead before the main tarts are finished it's really really mm. shocking way to start the episode he really doesn't have great luck with women in fact i think in season four he marries and then she's blown away by some thugs as well so uh that's um sheena easton who's famous for singing three hours only i mean basically in this show if you date crockett you're fucking dead aren't you but i do love a good crockett romance episode because it's a good use of the uh Good judicious use of the Crockett's theme, my favourite piece of music by Jan Hammer, famously. Yes, is that uh, that bit that doo-doo-doo? Yes. Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't appear very often. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't appear very often, but it's Crockett's theme. There's multiple different versions of it in this episode. 
Yeah, yeah, I like it when Jan plays, plays with it a little and changes it. It doesn't really get it. It's like properly played in its kind of album version very often. I think the only one I remember uh, specifically is when they change cars. So uh, famously, it's the Ferrari, the black Ferrari they have in the first two series. It gets blown up and then uh, he gets a, um, a Testarossa, which is the white souped up sports car. And it's the episode like he's just going to like uh, his boss played by Edward James Olmos, uh, who went on to be in a Battlestar. Uh, plays, yes. oh, what's his name? In this, Castillo. Uh, Castillo, Castillo. And he's like, how could I maintain a proper undercover without a car? Like, and he goes, it's a good car park. And uh, he goes outside <laughs> and it's this amazing sports car and he's very happy with it. But you hear Crockett's dream <laughs> there. Calderon's return, which is the yes. amazing two-parter from the first season, which actually introduces uh, Castillo, Edward James Olmos's character, yeah. which is an incredible. I mean, that is that is on the list of episodes that I'd be like, you know, if you're gonna check out some Miami Vice and you don't know where to start, that is a two-parter and I hugely recommend. Written by Joel Sanro. Um, one of the showrunners of 24 and directed by Paul Michael Glazer, uh, director of The Running Man. Uh, so that is a really great two part. Don't let that put you off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is a really great two part, which pretty much follows up almost directly from Brothers Keeper, the opening two part pilot. Yeah. Uh, so that is well worth checking yeah. out. So Matt mentioned uh, Martin Ferraro plays a recurring character called Izzy Marino, who's like this kind of um, snitch that you know Crockett's constantly threatening to throw back in jail for like some misdemeanor. Do you want to go back and play hide the soul? Be my guest, pal. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, but in this episode, you know, some of his um, uh, sort of get rich schemes are rather eye rolling. But this one is really funny. Uh, he does it sets up a boudoir photography business. He sort of like like himself to Eric von Stroheim. Uh, German director. That kind I mean, of stuff. he's so it's great because it's such a different part from what he plays in Jurassic Park. Like, it's really, really showing this guy's range. He's uh, he's got it in space. Well, he plays a cross-dressing assassin in the, in the pilot as well. You know, but um, in a separate, different character. Crockett actually says to him about his kind of boudoir photography. From now on, you're sending copies to the vice office. <laughs> like they can't wait to see. <laughs> oh, yeah, we need our personal delivery of that boudoir photographer, baby. <laughs> Look, um, you know you mentioned a famous wrestler being in this. Is he the geezer yeah. with shit in his face? There's yeah, yeah, what was up with that? It's yeah. got bloody paperclips or something, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. he, he, he had a really weird, like, run. It was like a weird shuffle run. And then later on, yeah, you see he's got, like, piercings in his face, but it's like elastic bands hanging off from them. It's really weird. And one in his beard yeah. as well. I didn't yeah. know what that was uh, about. Is that the rest of the guy? And is that his like signature look or something? That's where that's one of his signature things. Yeah, like uh, right. I mean, he's famous. The Hulk Hogan era of of World Wrestling Federation. Of course, yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's kind of like the late eight, you know, mid eighties, that kind of stuff. So he's massive on that. He's also was Super Mario 
himself in the Mario Brothers cartoon live action oh, shit, segment. Of course, yeah, the live action TV show, yeah. Holy cannoli, kids, I'm Mario. And I'm telling you, if you're not watching the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, you're gonna turn into a Goomba. Don't be the last on your block to be playing with pasta power. Tune in for the wildest weekday fun in the universe. Join me, Luigi, Princess Toadstool, and Toad. We're gonna kick some Koopa. Woo! Yeah, I remember the live action TV show from when I was a kid. It was like the, the Mario it, Brothers Super Show. It, it was like they presented it, didn't they? And then there was cartoons. Yeah, nice. They, they yeah. did the bookends. Yeah, they did bookends. Like yes, uh, on yes. that. I remember that well. Um, there's a Godzilla reference. In this episode. Yeah, and Rodan. Yeah. Love it, love it. Godzilla and Rodan came by, which they're referring to the two, you know, heavy bad guys. Uh, we'll be coming back to uh, Godzilla on a future crossover with Easy Riders Raging Podcast, of course. So look forward to that. We've discussed the weirdly cut sex scene. Um, one thing I was going Well, I just was saying about that. Like, it is... Oh. It is kind of reminiscent of a, a, a much better example of this is in uh, um, Rites of Passage, which is an episode where Pam Greer guest stars in yes. season one. And basically, on the, she's a cop who's on the search for her missing younger sister, who's like gone to Miami and then gets like given us cocaine by a guy and then ends up sort of having to hook for him. And it's John Turturro, like runs that kind of thing. He's great in it. Absolute sleazebag. It's basically, he just walks straight off the set to live and die in LA and carried on in the same character. But that has a great sort of sex scene with... Um, uh, Say sexy, but it's like it's a love scene with uh, Tubbs and and Pam Grier hooked up again, but it's it intercut with the murder of his of her sister. To I want to know what love is, <laughs> and it's incredible. That uh, that again is down on my list of great episodes of this show. Rites of Passage, season one, episode seventeen, mm. uh, written by Daniel Pine who also wrote The Hard Way, Doc Hollywood and Some of All Fears. And yeah, it's got Pam Greer in it. And whenever Pam Greer turns up in this show, you'll get a good sex scene, basically. She was in the two-part um, opener of season two as well. And there's another sex scene with her in uh, that yeah. between her and Tubbs again, which is which is yeah, very... That's, very a, that's a great episode too. Like, yes. That's uh, so basically Miami Vice the movie where like Tubbs and Crockett go to New York. A good, very amazing, like location shooting in that one too. I know we're saying like there's a lot of great episodes. There are also a lot of bad episodes. You know, there's one episode which has Tubbs on his own, pretty much goes to the Caribbean, and it is the most boring thing I've ever seen. I was, I think I skipped most of it. Yeah, Don Johnson like was owed a movie career after this, but he carried on Vice to 1989, missing out on Die Hard, which went to like former guest, no, vice guest star Bruce Willis with five million dollars for his. Uh, his participation in that movie which is unheard of at the time for somebody just straight from TV um, and then you know the career he got in movies was not quite what he expected I think you know he's in great little noir like uh, neo-noir with um, uh, Jennifer Connelly called The Hotspot great Christmas gift he gave me one year uh, yeah. yeah 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 Hotspot well worth checking out directed by Dennis Hopper uh, but then you got Holly Davidson and the Marlboro Man and like oh, some a really bad Sidney Lumet film and, and you know he was just he was really good in Tin Cup opposite Costner which is like the sleazy sort of loving love rival but mm. he never really had a, a movie career until I mean he had a bit of resurgence this is it I mean I think we should talk about the Don Jonathans which kind of like maybe Jonathan. started around Django Unchained and have seen him been in, playing great roles in like Cold in July and uh, Knives Out just last year like he seems to be a real go-to character actor right now and I'm loving seeing him in so much stuff because he's really yeah. he's at that kind of age late 60s early 70s where he, he he's lost none of his charisma at all and he can channel oh into God. really interesting characters 
I was laughing my ass off when he appears in Brawl at Cell Block 99. Yes, uh, another he's one. the warden of the maximum security prison where like Vince Vaughn gets sent and he's just so funny where he's telling him like how he's not gonna fuck over any of his guards. Like <laughs> He's fucking great in that movie. I mean he's so intense, like in that film. And like you say, he has just had a flurry of great latter day period roles because like you say, Django, Brawl and Cell Block, uh ninety-nine, Jack Eastbound and Down on TV? Yeah, he was in a couple episodes yep. of Eastbound Down playing Danny McBride's father. Jags Cross Concrete, he's in, and of course now, just recently, he's in Watchmen, the HBO... Oh, right, uh, yeah. Yeah, the HBO sequel uh, to Watchmen, which was one of the most critically lauded shows, you know, of the last decade, um, I'd say. Yeah, you, you saw it all, didn't you, oh, I've seen all of it, yeah, and he plays, um, <clears throat> plays a big, really important role in that. Uh, he's like the chief of police uh, in it, and he's absolutely brilliant in it. Um, and like you say, he, he really has lost none of that charisma because he still he still looks great, still looks great. And Knives yeah. Out obviously was another huge hit for him, so I really think he's on a real hot streak at the moment, very much so. Uh, so it, it's great to see. It feels like he's one of those actors in the eighties. He was almost too good looking. He's always too beautiful in the 80s and then gradually as he's aged up he's become more rugged and now he can play all these kind of character actor roles you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like people know just stick him in a cowboy hat and he is pure fire you know. Yes. Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's fucking great. I love him to this. But yeah I was going to mention this episode opens with a kind of big boat party and it's got tons of extras at it and I was just immediately like, yeah, you know... Yeah, it's a huge crane shot, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it just looks expensive straight away. The show looks big because often on TV when you've got a scene that requires a lot of extras, uh, you, you can often tell they're very kind of sparsely kind of put about. And whereas this is just... It's like it's got tons of fucking people like about there kind of overflowing yeah. off the boat. It's pure 80s yeah. high society, that kind of like high-class shindig on a yacht... <laughs> well, Vice yeah. did that so well. You've got the glitz and glamour of, like, you know, Miami. At the time, it was, a ma- it was like the murder capital of America, though. It's just like the, the version the show shows is what that, that drug money can buy. You know, it's so much power and influence. And they're having to kind of be at that level to be, you know, undercover with these guys. You know, show the flash, show the cash. And, you know, you really kind of, they need to, you can't just fake that. You know, they have to be riding the right suits. They have to be riding the right cars. And you need the extras to fill out the room to make it look like it's just, you know, some fucking pub that they're doing this deal in. And it's like, it really does that. It does really good crowd scenes. They put the money up on the screen where it matters. I'm just looking at some of the best episodes yeah, they did. I think we mentioned about like why it's got an 18 rate. There was like a C episode called Golden Triangle Part 1 and 2. And that's where uh, Castillo like goes on the cover with them. You know, he performs some serious jiu-jitsu on some bad guys, uh, which, <laughs> which gets, gets it as rating. But it's, it's a really good two-par uh, Golden Triangle, the, by the way, is the yes, only Michael. one for where Michael Mann gets a writing credit on part two. Yeah, and then uh, it's about out where the buses don't run, which is Bruce McGill, who's a man regular, like in great bit parts. He played, you know, he's an insider, uh, collateral. He might be an Ali as well, yeah. And uh, yeah, he's a great guest star in this one. Yeah, I think just like with Star Trek, that's how we've been approaching some of these bigger series just to get our like, hand in. It's just, you know, have a look at what, what people say about like, the top 10, 15. Yeah, they've done the legwork for you. Get some, uh, get some vice under your belt. Did we all enjoy the uh, slow mo gunfight climax, which is almost entirely in slow mo? I should add, uh, in in Takay's lair. 
Well, it's cool, isn't it? Because you got. I like the utilization of the fish tanks uh, in it. Yeah, it's just they all get blown. It, that, That's the thing. They're, they're adding extra bits of visual flair. It's clear that the production design director went, well, that will look interesting. If we've got these big fish tanks and they explode during the shootout, that will look cool. Yeah. And that's the thing. That's It's the added attention to detail that makes this show stand out uh, amongst TV shows at yeah. that time, which wouldn't usually be trying to do things like that with a bit of extra visual flair to them. Yeah, Takai does a great reaction to like uh, Crockett saying it's going to be fifteen percent cut they're going to take, um, which will be the highlight of his performance in this episode. And he, then he packs an Uzi in the showdown as well, which was amazing. I really liked that Melanie uh, Griffith's character kills the bad guy herself. I like that she got that moment. I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, and there's a great final scene with her. Like clearly, the relationship with her Crockett's over. She's been used. That's kind of dark. Crockett's like properly using her to get his get his, his job done. And then when it, at the end, when they have a kind of confrontation on the boat, uh, so Crockett has a, a boat down the, the marina. Can I talk to you? Sure. Fish aren't biting anyway. I wanted to say goodbye. I'm leaving the country. Yeah, you've been taking a little heat in the press lately. I don't blame you. Yeah, I still can't believe it. You know the newspaper that's been crucifying me? Well, the publisher was one of my biggest clients. And so is that little worm that does the editorials on Channel 8. They're bastards, all of them. That go for me, too? He might be the biggest one of all. And he is. Yeah, and of course, you know, we've talked about how Miami Vice used just incredible needle drops of the time. And in the final scene, they used Simply Red holding back the years, uh, which is a great trap. They also like do a great downer endings. Like a lot of Vice episodes end in quite, like despair, like, you know, the witness gets shot. Like, you yes. know, it's that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, they're not quite of like everybody's sort of spy the camera of you know uh, freeze frame moments. They're the freeze frame, but they're usually like something bad. Bad has just happened. So guys, like it's your first rewatch for a while. I've watched some Vice with Sophie, my wife, like a few um, months back, um, and she really like enjoyed it. She quite found it quite fun. I was obviously cherry picking. I uh, wasn't going to share the one with Tubbs in the Caribbean. No, um, but. <laughs> But you know, bruvs, you haven't seen one of these in years. What was your first take on watching Vice again? Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it a lot because obviously, yeah, back when we were saying in kind of the tail end of two thousand five, two thousand six, I think we did watch quite a few of season one together, and uh, I don't think I'd seen much beyond that. So this was definitely the first episode I've seen in quite a while, and it's interesting seeing it coming from that same time period as something like the Next Generation. So. In a way, I'm kind of queued up to 80s TV in that way. And it's obviously a very different look and style to TNG, but it was obviously fantastic to see Decay in action again. And yeah, it, it, it stood up It stood up really well. It was kind of like quite a simple plot in there, but it's it's good highlights in there. I think I think Tubbs gets a bit short-changed. Like he doesn't have an awful lot to do in this, but I do remember liking yeah. him a lot throughout the show anyway. So uh, it's very yeah. much a Crockett-centered episode. And, and seeing as how Johnson directed it and put his ex-wife in, he was obviously going to push for him being a main part of it. So, but yeah, it's very, very fun. 
yeah, Tubbs definitely does get shortchanged in this one, which is a shame because, you know, he he could have a lot more to do. Uh, and, you know, I prefer it when there's a bit more of an equilibrium between the two. Mm. I mean, like, Tubbs has one of the best moments ever in the pilot, I think, where he goes to a club and is doing um, uh, singing along to uh, I, when I feel like somebody's always watching me. Uh, yes, that's with, it. That's what we watched. Yeah, that was <laughs> amazing because because Tubbs really has one amazing skill, which is a terrible Jamaican accent, which he can employ <laughs> to pretend he's undercover. But that's his kind of like his thing. Well, uh, of course, Tubbs. It is very much the focus of the original cold open of the first ever episode, which is amazing. I remember watching that cold open back in the day and straight away being like in, being like, oh, this is fucking cool. Because a guy comes to his window and he just fucking pulls the double barrel shotgun on him. It's, you're like, oh, this guy's badass. Like this whole show is kind of feels really, really cool for its time. Yeah, it was, I mean, I haven't watched an episode in ages. But I've still got I've I've still got season one on DVD somewhere up in my collection. Ten years of Carl's that survived. Yes, yeah, it has survived. Well, yeah, because I <laughs> there are episodes in season one which I just think are kind of like you know masterpiece TV. Like I say, that uh, sequence in um, the first opening pilot with in the air tonight, I think you know is up with my top TV moments of all time, and you know, and I think this. This was something that first showed that TV could be kind of cinematic in its visual presentation, uh, at least. You know, there's plenty of great TV beforehand uh, that kind of, you know, is very well written and stuff like that. But I think this kind of, you know, visually took it to a new level, certainly. And, yeah, it, it still... It still looks cool. I mean, obviously, you know, there's, there's dated elements. Like you say, there's some episodes that are great a lot of episodes that are bad, but I think if you can, like you say, if you can cherry pick, and that's the case with a lot of these type of shows. I mean, this year, 1987, that's the same year that Star Trek Next Generation started. And, you know, with, with that, you probably don't even want to start until, like, season three. You know what I mean? So, you, you can still yeah, and, you cherry pick. But, you know, there's 24 episodes a year. Yes. That's a lot of content. And they're going to repeat themselves. You're going to be... It is ridiculous, like, how they use the same undercover aliases you know, don't do any, does anybody ever get released from prison? I go, oh, this guy, Sonny Burnett, who, who set me up, like, that's going to get back somewhere, but he's the yes. same one again and again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, it, exactly. is, it, is, it is, a, it's a really thin premise, but you, you, if you buy into it, you have a great time. And they've got quite a cool, like, uh, cast supporting characters, regulars, yeah. uh, who, uh, you know, fill out their, the vice squad. Um, one, of which who, characters. one of which is dead by this point in time. Zito, who dies halfway through season yes. three. The thing is, all these characters are in the movie, of course. Yeah, it's good that they have the team in the movie. They're quite, yeah. quite differently played, definitely. Um, yeah, very and, different. I, well, it's interesting. Know. That's that's my main kind of takeaway with comparing to the film, is that a lot of people at the time kind of complained that the movie wasn't like the show, but I think it is in many ways because of the fact the movie, you know, it dives right in like an ep of the TV show would do. Uh, it doesn't waste any time or assume any knowledge. It just kind of gets going right away with the relationships established. Um, so you have to play catch-up, and it doesn't immediately feel accessible. Um, and I think that's a problem that a lot of people found with it. And, and because of that, they found it cold, maybe, when really it's just kind of you, you're leaping in and out of these characters' lives. Like, it starts off the bat, and it just kind of ends midway through a thing. And I think that's something the movie really captures in a way 
that people don't give it credit for. And like you say, the team element is there. Like it, it, they may be played very differently, but they're all kind of set up. There's no, there's no origin story. There's no meeting. It's just kind of into yeah. a case and out of a case. So in that sense, it's ultimately like the show, but obviously through a, a mid noughties kind of cinematic lens. Actually, the script is kind of amalgamation of several um, episodes as well. There's elements that mm. are taken some from the best episodes of the show um, and sort of you know, fit them into the plot of this film. An episode, you know, where they have to go to the south border poses sort of smugglers and that's that's definitely an episode it's all contained in one and then there's also like a um, sequence where trudy uh, one of the um, the team is captured in, in a trailer park and there's a bomb that she's you know tied to um that's an episode as well and also the finale you know shoot out down in miami docks is like you know i think how several episodes ended so it's uh yeah there's plenty of elements there it's, it's yeah i mean like the, how we thought i'll oh, stop people complaining star trek 2009 was not like the show it's like well it was but it's just like a best of like put it all together it's like blended up this is that but minus the you know a lot of the humor and lightness you know there's no pet alligator even like jamie fox was like determined to try and get away from all that like he was saying there'd be no damn flamingos uh when he was promoting this you know it's like well you could have had a couple of flamingos nobody would have cared anyway back to miami vice the actual episode itself so it's shame there wasn't too much to k but he made a big uh, impression in the time he was there, hundred percent. And I'd be massive. Yeah, yes, I he think did. he was great. It really, really good. Like uh, winner of the week. Um, I so, I really enjoy his performance in this. Yeah, and I'd be massively intrigued to see his murder she wrote. But also, you know, I buy him as somebody interested in women too. <laughs> <laughs> this episode just to show his range. Um, he would have shot in between Star Trek for the Voyage Home, San Francisco. I was born there. Star Trek V Final Frontier. Admit it. We're lost. All right, we're lost. But we're making good time. Commander Sulu, come in, please. I don't believe this. Commander Sulu here. Bad news, gentlemen. Shirley's been cancelled. Rescued at last. Return to prearranged coordinates for pickup. Storm, tell them you're lost. You'll never leave it down. Is there a problem, gentlemen? Um, yes. Um, we've been caught in a... We've been caught in a blizzard. And we can't see a thing. Request you direct us to the coordinates. My visual says sunny skies and 70 degrees. Sulu, look. The sun's come out. It's a miracle. Don't worry, fellas. Your secret's safe with me. I'll send the shuttlecraft to pick you up. Uhura, I owe you one. Sulu out. As obviously Voyage Home came out in 86, uh, Final Frontier in 89. So this was his in-between gig that's interesting to place it within mm. his kind of movings in the Star Trek lexicon. But I think we wanted to talk a little bit about Michael Mann in general, didn't we? Because we are all yeah. giant Mann fans. I I've seen all his films. Uh, you've seen everything, haven't you, Paul? Yeah. Have you seen everything, oh, oh, Well, we say... So Thief remains at the time of recording my only blind spot. Oh, you have Oh my goodness, me. that's a shame. No, not at all. Oh wow. Holy shit. Okay, so well, you're in so the Funny enough, that'll in, be saved to like, last. Off so. the bat and say like Thief is my favourite Michael Mann movie. Okay, very good. Um, and I don't know what uh, it is because uh, it's, I think it's on the last watch I just realised that this film is like a perfect encapsulation of everything that he is about. Uh -huh. Like we call him a man's man. Like, you know, James Kahn is the lead of this movie and there's like so much testosterone, like it's oozing off the screen. But he's like a uh, high level sort of jewel thief 
who you know is independent, has his own crew, he sets up his own scores, he answers nobody. He wants to retire, like he needs to have a couple of scores, he's there. But like a local gangster played by Robert Prosky, who's actually debuting like in his mid-50s as the villain in this movie. Local Chicago mobster who says, you know, I can get you bigger scores, you know, quicker money. He does the job, but becomes almost indebted to the mob, like, you know, but you can't get free of it. And it's the independence that he wants to show with his work and everything in his life. He doesn't want to be asked to anybody because he's spent time in prison. It's just like the perfect script. And there's an amazing like 10 minute uh, sequence where Khan lays out his plan for like his future to a uh, prospective, well, not just girlfriend, a prospective wife. He's running out of time. He's been in prison. He's lost loads of time to that. He's come out with this plan. He's took these steps to get there. And it just, you get such a great like character. You understand everything about it, all his motivations that what comes next has so much weight. But it ends, you know. It will end. When I got this right there, it ends, it's over. So I'm just asking you to be with me. I can't. I can't. Oh, I can't have children. I don't fit into this. Well, we adopt. I I am not ready. See, and and I have my life. So I I can't. What? I mean, what? What is going on in your life that is so terrific? Mine's been a mess. I was just, I was just thinking, you know, that just maybe between the two of us, that we could make something, something happen, something special, something really nice, you know. So I'm just, uh, I'm just asking you uh, to uh, look, and I got a way now that I, I can make it happen faster. I mean, much. Much faster, and uh, I'm just, I'm just asking you, you know. Uh, Paul's completely right. The key to this is is James Caan. It's it's one of the best performances I've ever seen. Like, I think he's absolutely incredible. I think it's his finest hour. Uh, I mean, it's it's a character study. You know, the film is called Thief. And that, that's exactly, I, I think that exemplifies the kind of film it is. It is a character study. And mm. despite the fact that it's only just under two hours, it, it feels shorter, feels really lean and mean. And that final sequence is so economic because it is just like, you know, he goes, he takes care of business. That's the end of the film. Well, man's obsessed with like professionals doing a job. Yes. Like, yeah, it might be... You know, highline uh, jewelries, robbery, that kind of stuff, or it's, uh, you know, cops or, you know, master criminals in Heat or, you know, in The Insider, like TV people. He's very interested in people who are, like, the best at what they do and mm. the technique and, the, you know, the way they kind of present themselves with Khan. Like you said, it's a character, it's like all that's, you know, there. So the character is so perfectly drawn. It just encapsulates what Michael Mann's career would be. Yeah, I think as well, this, the, the use of music, uh, this is a Tangerine Dream Score, who had before yep. this, I think, done Sorcerer for William Freakin, but it's quite, you know, uh, avant-garde to have like a full kind of synth electronic soundtrack. And, you know, it's what, when I first watched Thief, kind of dated it, didn't enjoy it, but now it's the things I love the most about it. It sounds like nothing else. It actually becomes more timeless now because we've had the 80s twice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it kind of feels like films like Drive 
uh, Nicholas Wending reference drive have kind of brought all of this back into vogue, doesn't it? In terms of people have gone back to films <laughs> like Thief, uh, which Drive takes yeah. a lot from, I would say. Uh, you know, rediscover yeah, massively. And uh, Tangerine Dream, he employed in his next film, uh, The Keep, which I think we've referenced before. You know, not as successful for for a lot of reasons, but it does help create this kind of like otherworldly atmosphere, mm. like this fever dream sort of bizarre sort of gothic horror film which is set you know in uh, Romania where these Nazis have taken refuge in a, um, a keep and uh, but they disturb a monstrous kind of being that's been in prison there it's not to keep people out it's to keep something in and uh, you know it's a, it's a bit of a who's who's cast again in this one but the film is like you know heavily truncated by the studio and kind of missing some key beats that were like would make make it make more sense uh, but yeah, I mean that really does feel like the like the outlier in his in his filmography for like a lot of interesting reasons. But yeah, when you know Ian McKellen's in it, of course, and when he shows up, he's made up to look older than he was. But I didn't realize that, so I was like, Jesus Christ, was McKellen like forty plus in nineteen eighty three? How has he always played old, and then he he kind of de ages a bit in it? It's a really well, effective, he just Max uh, bit of it out. Like it's like the excess yeah. makeup where it's like you managed to get exactly what it's going to look like in 40 years it is yeah, incredible nailed it that was my missing piece of uh man i watched it for the first time the other day and uh yeah i mean you can tell that it's had loads cut out of it and it's been bushed by the studio and i'd love to see a kind of director's cut one day and yeah. there's some really interesting visual imagery and effects in it and yeah i i did i i got a kick out of it i enjoyed it yeah i think there's some visual you know what we call visual effects so not effects necessarily added after the fact but on screen in yes. camera effects yeah. Yeah, yeah that you were just looking at and you're going how did you do this? There's also production design by uh, the great John Box, like multiple Academy Award winner for lots of David Lee movies. And his, you know, stylings where he's transformed this Welsh kind of quarry into like, this village. It looks amazing. Um, it really does need a high IF remaster. Like, you know, it, man won't have anything to do with it. Interestingly, I met like a guy on a film shoot where he was a stenographer for me and uh, he actually shot a, a Keep documentary. Which is which hasn't been released yet still, but it's got most of the people involved in the making of it who would who would go on the record, and uh, so hopefully it'll be make a great supplement if anybody can put this on disc, uh, on a Blu-ray uh, one of these days. And I think that's the best we can hope for, really, because man's not interested in going back to it, despite the kind of cult status you know it's gaining over the years. So oh, so he's he's just not he, even if they said oh yeah you can do a director's cut, he's he's not interested. Well, it only got released on DVD this year, and DVD's been around for twenty three years. Yeah. That's so crazy, it's not yeah. been high on the priority list for anybody. And yeah, it's the first official DVD release only in Australia. And that goes to show like how little of an interest he has in this project. And I think probably has actually suppressed it. Right. Okay. Okay. Because I guess it's it's not, it didn't turn out how he, how he wanted. Yeah. I, I, I do think he probably thinks the final cut is a bit almost unreleasable. And it's such a butcher's job. There are such big leaps forward in narrative logic. It does feel... It's almost. I, I think it's almost unreleasable at sometimes, but there's so much to recommend it. I can't oh, yeah. you know, say it's a bad movie. And to be honest, it's such a weird film anyway that I I kind of got on board with the weird narrative jumps just because it's such a it's such a head fucky odd surrealist film anyway that I just kind of thought oh yeah it's all kind of part of it you know it kind of works obviously it's it's not wholly. Uh, successful, but I definitely think it's it's worth watching. Well, I'm glad you glad you enjoy it because I was like push shoving it down your throat a little bit. You guys, you know, I don't think even you were like really excited for the keep. I was like, no, you need to do it. you need to have. Full I mean, man, I'm definitely glad I, I 
I'm definitely glad I checked it out. Like, it really is quite a unique film. And even if you just take away the visual kind of sonic atmosphere from it alone, it's, like, enough to be like, wow, that's really, that's really got a vision behind it for, like, an early 80s compromised kind of weird mm. horror mashup film. And it's such yeah. a weird yeah. sidestep after Thief as well. And, and like you say, it's kind of after this, he just completely headed back into... I mean, it's the weird thing... Well, Last of the Mohicans is weird for me as well because of the fact that that feels, again, outside a lot of his other films, this kind of historical epic, whereas the majority... Have you, have you rewatched it recently, I, though? I rewatched it uh, literally in the last couple of days, yeah. Um, Last of the Mohicans... Yeah. Um, do you think it's still an outlier? Uh, I do think it's an outlier, yeah, certainly, in terms of I think it is not, not as much as the key, but I do think the majority of his films, like, looking over, they're all kind of hard-boiled crime pictures, and, like, you know, this is, again, kind of outside of that. But I enjoyed it a lot more than the first time I saw it. The first time I saw Last of the Mohicans, I, I was quite bored by it. I think I was so knee-deep in, you know, Michael Mann's crime movies at the time I was like what the fuck is this like yeah like yeah boy where's the, where's, where's the neon like nightscapes and stuff like that and uh, whereas watching it this time I, I could appreciate it a lot more um, it's, it's definitely yeah really great score but, oh amazing score Trevor Jones right mm-hmm. mm. yeah yeah, yeah. Well, of course also did the score to Cliffhanger uh, which I love but yeah I, I I liked it I think it's a very well made film it's one of those movies where I watch it and I go oh it's not really what I come to man for but I still still enjoy it and I do agree with man himself who when interviewed about the film said that the the novel that he's based on he described as a politically evil novel and he said he tried his best to change the story and try and kind of, you know, uh, emphasise the roles of the Native Americans in it and stuff like that. But he said himself that, he, you know, he could only do so much. The original kind of source material. And I kind of think that is still... Uh, I think he really makes a decent stab of it. Um, but I think it's still kind of, you know... Well, the Colonials do not come out well of it, out of it, definitely. Yes, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I do uh, think... But what you're getting, you're seeing a perfect man protagonist, like, again, the man is top of his field, like, he's the best tracker, best, like, shot. Hawkeye, as played by Daniel D. Lewis, yeah. you know, is, like, almost unstoppable for everything, hasn't he? Um, yeah, 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 he's he's good. I... And standing up to the the power, you know, he, he speaks the truth to, like, power in this movie. You know, he stands up to mm. the bridge and tells him where they're getting off. You know, and inspires others to follow. You know, follow follow him, um, and uh, you know, you see similar kind of things in other movies as well, like The Insider for sure. You know, where Albertina tells them where they're all like selling out uh, to the to bigger interests. There's definitely some big man elements in there, and I think you know he's toyed with this film a few times as well. It's, it's this is the third recut on Blu-ray. The first director's cut, he took a lot of like the more cinematic kind of lines out, where you know it's like you and me are going to have a serious disagreement. But I think he's kind of done a bit of a, a, a change, you know, he's chosen a, a one between the two now, where it's got a lot of the original kind of like Hollywood lines with a bit more kind of backstory, but not much. It's not that big difference. Well, we skip Manhunter right there in the middle of the 80s. You've got um, another, you know, it's, it's incredibly well shot, this film, Manhunter. You know, really avant-garde, like, in the same way my advice is like, you know, the music kind of stands out. Like, there's certain sequences of this which are just, just music and... Mm you know, you really get inside the head of William Peterson playing like this really kind of fragile um, investigator, Will Graham. His, his very meeting with Dr. Lecter is played by brilliantly by Brian Cox. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. He runs outside, everything's out of focus. You know, he can't even see straight. 
it's great the way you kind of like get his you know his headspace really in the in the movie mm. that's the same atrocious aftershave you wore in court three years ago yeah i keep getting it for christmas did you get my card i got it thank you and how's officer stewart the one who was first to see my basement stewart's fine emotional problems i hear do you have any problems will no no of course you don't i'm glad you came my callers are mostly clinical psychologists from Cornfield University somewhere. Second raters, the lot. Dr. Bloom showed me your article on surgical addiction in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. And? Very interesting. Even to a layman. I want you to help me, Dr. Lecter. Yes. I thought so. It's about Atlanta and Birmingham. Yes? You read about it? In the papers. I don't tear out the articles. I wouldn't want them to think I was dwelling on anything morbid. You want to know how he's choosing them, don't you? I hadn't seen it in, in quite a while. Yeah, it, it went up in my estimations because I always thought of it as kind of like the other Hannibal Lecter film, of course, but like it's so much more than that. It's incredible. No, no, I think it's uh, it does kind of stand alone, really, because it's, it obviously doesn't tie up and they remade its Red Dragon, but it's that's just like the Harry mm. Potter of serial killer films. You know, <laughs> it is just like anybody who was like famous at the time gets a part in that movie. Yeah, you know? I mean, Red Dragon it's is like an all-star cast. It's in, insane. Completely drained of out of any style whatsoever. And it's just so by the numbers. Uh, I, I, it's just next yeah, to this. It's, it's Brett, got... Brett it's, fucking Ratner, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, let's say about Ratner, rat the better. But I Ratner. mean, I do actually <laughs> like Red Dragon as a film, but Manhunter is better. It has a cast so good that it. Yeah, but they're, but there's obviously these are all aliases, but they're just they're not really acting these parts. They're just walking on and saying their lines. It's, I think Norton. Whereas, like, I, think I believe Norton that the cast of Manhunter. I think Norton does a really good job in Red Dragon. I, I personally. Nah, I'm not talking about him per se. I mean, but I'm talking about like you know you got Harvey Keitel. Yeah, I mean he's hardly you know, in it. like that who just come on and they're just not. Yeah, I know, but they're just they're sort of well, it's Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Uh, Nobody seems to be trying as you know, whereas the parts the bit parts in like Manhunter, they really do stand out. Dennis Freena's fucking great. The whole reason they were making it was so they could have another Hannibal Lecter film with Anthony Hopkins. So he's got loads of random yeah. scenes in that film that aren't needed at all. Like the thing he yeah. he, he lets him um he, he lets him listen to some opera and have a nice meal at one point. And it's this whole extended montage sequence with him. And it's it's totally not needed. It should be on the cutting room floor. But they just wanted to get as much Hopkins in as possible. And I do like Brian Cox in the role because uh, the, the thing I like mm. about the Hannibal Lecter character is we've now had a number of interpretations, all of which I really like. I, I think Hopkins is brilliant in Science of the Lambs, but I think Brian Cox does a completely different kind of portrayal of that character here. But I always told you I have dreams that he's, Brian Cox is like the most intimidating man you could ever meet. <laughs> yeah, what, have you watched Succession? <laughs> no. Succession, um, HBO show, which is absolutely brilliant. This is peak HBO stuff. This is them back to their best. Uh, it's had two seasons so far. He's the main, the central figure. He's the, uh, he's basically, he's Rupert Murdoch. He's basically Rupert Murdoch. He's running this, uh -huh. running this like news empire. And he is fucking terrifying in it. He's so, so yeah. scary. Because he's, he, he's got all his kids 
living in fear. The way Brian Cox swears in succession is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Fuck off! <laughs> yeah, he's so fucking good. That was your best shot? You lost. I think there's some doubt as to whether he lost one. And Kendall, Frank, Asha, Alona, off the board, fired with immediate uh, effect. I don't think you're able to security. do Security! I'm in the middle of turning a fucking Dad, bank of Frank. house you you're don't fired. Need to call security. I have some doubt. I'm in the middle of turning a fucking tanker! Yeah! Frank! You're fired! <laughs> Gotta check out Succession. Cox, Cox is amazing. He's a brilliant fucking actor. And yeah, and like back in the HBO family after his guest slot in Deadwood, yes, three, of course, in which he's playing like you know this campy theatre owner, so he can, he can do it all. Darling. Yeah, he, he, to- he, he totally <laughs> can. Also, well worth checking out is The Escapist, one of his few lead roles. Rupert Wyatt's actual debut. He's absolutely brilliant in that, and yeah, I do love him. And how did William Peterson not become a bigger star? Oh, it's unreal. I mean, he did eventually, but it took well, to yeah, 2001. CSI, CSI, of course. <laughs> you know, we have to live and die in LA, uh, you know, double t- double team. Well, well this is exactly Back it. to back. I rewatched To Live and Die in LA and Manhunter within like a week of each other. And I was like, holy shit, this guy is fucking amazing. He's badass, he's sexy. Like, you know, he's like, how... How was he not a giant star? You know, don't get it. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Like, Peterson totally should have had a better career. Um, it's a shame. But at least we've got these two, which are great time capsule yeah, movies of that mid-80s. Yeah, they're as well. Like, right. hardcore, crime. Oh, terrific. Cool. I mean, To Live and Die in LA feels like the missing man film in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. And as I said to you, it's so much so that man sued freaking for copyright infringement. <laughs> so uh, is that so it's too close to it? Well, this is IMDb, like, you can basically right, right. Truth or believe bullshit. it or not. But somebody wrote it, <laughs> at truth or bullshit, yeah. <laughs> I like to believe it. I like to believe these things. Like, the one from, like, one of his I have not watched in the last two years. I watched everything else in the last two years, but he... Heat, Pacino, De Niro, Michael Mann. What do you got? Four bodies in a morgue. I'm out there every fucking day. No. Oh. Yeah? Heat. Yeah. A movie with De Niro Pacino are running a celebrity magazine. What do you got? I need a photo exclusive of Katie Price having a Botox. Ain't got it, Al. We can't do it. We can't do it. It's not looking... What do you mean it's not looking good? I gotta have a... on a front page right now! Such a key film growing up. It was the first film of his I saw. I remember getting the video. I mean, just the Pacino De Niro on the cover. You were like, okay, these are the two heavyweights. I'm, I'm learning about films. Heat's a great place to start. And you know it was, yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, same. I think I, I think I probably saw it round yours, Paul, back in the day, and I haven't seen it since then. So we're talking at least ten years plus. Yeah, I think Thief is my personal favourite, but I think of his most accomplished movie. I'm going to say for me, my Heat. I, I know maybe you've got a different view on this, but he is the pinnacle of his like everything his career is about. You talk about crime thrillers. Yeah. It's the ultimate thing. He you know he's been working like twenty years that screenplay. A lot of it's based on, uh, you know, true stories, you know, that he'd been interviewing uh, real police detectives and criminals. In fact, Thief is popular by career criminals and, and uh, also ex-cops in lots of bit yep. parts. You know, he did a crime story, you know, starring ex-cop Dennis Farina. And he actually, there's scenes in Heat which are in crime story where he looks almost like his first attempt at them. And let's not forget, like, uh, that he directed LA Takedown, which is a 19-minute sort of condensed version of Heat for TV as a aborted pilot. It's terrible but it's almost like his sketch of like getting these ideas closer and closer to like what they would be in heat and 
So you think about like his entire career is building up to this point. It's there's some emotion of all of his interests and research. I think, I think for me, Collateral is my favorite of his movies, but I think it's hard to deny that he is kind of his magnum opus, the most man-man film there is. It's slap bang in the middle of his filmography. I think it's it's either everybody's favorite or like yes, that's, all, that's yeah, definitely one of his best. LA films. Crime Saga, the tagline. You know, it just he knows it's like it's a saga. You've got lots of small sort of you know some people might say some like you know irrelevant plot lines in it but it's just the characters the huge cast they all get their yeah. kind of little plot subplots some of them you know have more to do with the main a plot than others but mm. it just feels like the time spent to kind of really get the canvas of la mm. you know mm. well, that's um, it. i think yeah. we're all on the same page where we're saying like sort of collateral's my favorite thief is yours paul and the insider for you right like, we're all like Fuck, we're all like fuck yeah he yes obviously. yeah oh yeah yeah <laughs> I, I appreciate it more every time i see it it's undoubtedly a five-star masterpiece and like you say i think it is the grand culmination of everything he'd done um up to that point and like you say in many ways it is the ultimate man film even though it's not my personal favorite hugely influential i mean people are funny enough i literally was of course re-watching uh nick loves the sweeney uh remake last night because i'm going on another <laughs> podcast the movie bunker uh podcast where they take critically panned films and kind of reevaluate them and i've brought uh nick loves the sweeney to the table which i'm a big fan of you're like critically and, panned. He, and that <laughs> is and, and definitely 100 percent that that takes cues from heat in it and i know nick love is a gigantic fan of michael mann and you know that's a film that came out in 2012 uh so literally you know almost 20 years after heat and and people are still very much taking their cues from it when it comes to big crime cops and robbers dramas i think den of thieves as well gerald butler that that's one that takes its cues very much from heat well i think any high sequence ever filmed Subsequent yeah. to Heat, it's like it's basically the wild bunch of heist movies. Yes. Like nothing, everything's in its shadow since then. Everything before is hasn't quite kind of done it as well. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Crime Story there. I think the main reason we haven't talked about Crime Story much is because we we talked about we crime talked about it so much last week. Yeah, we talked about Crime Story <laughs> so much in uh, our best of both worlds <laughs> episode. We had a kind of twenty minute <laughs> divergence into Crime Story. Uh, the other big show that um, Man was the executive producer of in the 80s with Dennis Breeder in the lead. And like you say, there's there's scenes in Crime Story which they recreate in Heat later. This, yeah, there's that scene is in three, well, it's been three films. Well, now they can take down as well, apparently. So it's like, it takes, you know, to Pacino and Xander Berkeley to make it fully work, fully realised <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. in Heat. And it's amazing. But, you know, I think maybe you, just for shits and giggles, you should insert a clip of Scott Plank and his and his other on-screen partner do the um, meeting between Macaulay and you know and Detective Hannah. I think they've got different names in LA Takedown, but the acting on display, murdering those same lines that would be so good <laughs> for De Niro Pacino eight years later, it's incredible. It's like how the same dialogue sounds so bad through the through these other actors. So yeah, it, don't don't use too much because it will put people off. You know we're here sitting talking. And if I'm there when you're coming out of a score, I'll blow you out of your socks. I won't like it, but I won't think twice about it. Because if the wife of some poor bastard you kill is going to be made into a widow, or you're going to go down, brother, hey, you're going to go down. Because you don't have to be here. You could be a, a mailman. 
Well, there's a flip side to that coin. Now that we've been face to face, I'd as soon let you walk on by. But if you're there and you got me boxed in, I'll put you down. I'll do what I gotta do, and you will not get in my way. <laughs> you, and you say LA take down piece of shit. You say not not worth watching. Well, I've only what I've seen on YouTube. I'm just like oh, I can't watch this. No, no, I've watched clips on YouTube, and that was enough for me to kind of stay uh, way uh, away uh, from uh. it. See, I am. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, it's one of those things that intrigues me, just because I'm like, hey, it's not like when that came out, man couldn't. Direct, we knew he, he directed good stuff before then, but he, it, maybe that's a thing of trying to achieve something on the scale of he on a TV budget back then would have been very, very mm. difficult. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we move on to the Insider, which was. Obviously beloved by critics, but did not find an audience. And you know, you've got beloved by Disney, me, Touchstone. It's beloved by me. Yeah, I mean, and loved by me too. But I was surprised to find out that it was nominated for Best Picture. Like, I didn't realize how big its reach got. Well, when it came out critically, it was absolutely amazing. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you look back at contemporary reviews of the time that it, it, it might be like man's like best mm. reviews from like the actual time it came out. Yeah. But it's just that it's... Well, it was the first of three consecutive best actor nods for yeah. Crow before he won one on the third time around in Beautiful Mind. It's an insane he run. Is, he is, is incredible in that, in that film. But I think as time's gone on, it hasn't had the staying power in terms of it in people's minds that something like yeah. he has had, even though for yeah, me, right. it's the better film. Yeah, and I watched it again recently. I'd watched it, um, you know, maybe sort of seven years ago, and I hadn't watched it in quite a while, as you know. It's one of those films where I didn't want to kind of overdo the rewatches because it moves me so much, like mm. actual, like, you know, tears. And I, you mm. know, I remember watching it in the, in the first few viewings. It had that power still over me, even on the rewatch ones. And I wondering, will it still hold it? And yeah, it had me again. Like, I was like, the filmmaking, you know what's going to come. But when the scene, uh, it's usually with the Lisa Gerrard score yes. um, and Peter Bjork. I think it is, you know, the music comes in and, you know, he's watching the final edit of the show, finally airing, and, and uh, this is the um, the whistleblower, Jeffrey Wigand, played by Russell Crowe, who's been fighting with, uh, and Al Pacino's been in his corner to try and get the unedited interview that he did for CBS finally shown, because the tobacco companies could lobby and they could they could threaten, they was, you know, doing everything they could not to let him, like, have tell the secrets of what he knew about the, about the um, tobacco finally gets to show it and his daughters you know who he's lost his wife he's lost his home he's lost his car all the kind of benefits he said giving up everything for to tell the truth and it means so much for him to, for his daughters to see it and there's a great scene where you know it's shown and their and their reaction you know is is there and it absolutely floors me every time that is one of the best scenes ever yeah i agree it's hugely emotional film and I think just Pacino and Crow, they're absolutely at the top of their game in that movie. Yeah, and I, I just think it's I just think it's an incredibly understated film. It's just yeah, and, and Crow I just don't think Crow's ever been better. I know he's had more grandstanding roles like Gladiator and stuff like that. But for me, in terms of just actual acting, in terms of your ability to inhabit a role and disappear under it. Uh, you know, that's his greatest achievement for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is, you know, his finest performance is so nuanced. You know, he's playing a really unlikable character, really. Mm. I mean, because Wigan's not a particularly easy guy. He's very, you know, defensive and he's, you get, but you get to like, like him, you know, you really want him to sort of see him, you know, he puts everything on the line. 
Crow just you know, has such humanity. Pacino is like terrific in this movie. Oh, it yeah, feels he's, like the, he's uh, Sidney Lumet by way of Michael Mann, the way he's like standing up against the system. And you're questioning our journalistic integrity. No, I'm questioning your hearing. You hear reasonable and tortious interference. I hear potential Brown and Williamson lawsuit jeopardizing the sale of CBS to Westinghouse. I hear shut the segment down, cut Wigan loose, obey orders, and fuck off. That's what I hear. You're exaggerating. I am? You pay me to go get guys like Wigan, to draw him out, to get him to trust us, to get him to go on television. I do. I deliver him. He sits, he talks. He violates his own fucking confidentiality agreement. And he's only the key witness in the biggest public health reform issue, maybe the biggest, most expensive corporate malfeasance case in U.S. history. And Jeffrey Wigand, who's out on a limb, does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Is it newsworthy? Yes. Are we going to air it? Of course not. Why? Because he's not telling the truth. No, because he is telling the truth. That's why we're not going to air it. And the more truth he tells, the worse it gets. You are a fanatic, an anarchist, you know that? If we can't have a whole show, then I want half a show rather than no show. But oh no, not you. You won't be satisfied unless you're putting the company at risk. What are you? Are you a businessman or are you a newsman? Because that happens to be what Mike and I and some other people around here do for a living. Put the corporation at risk. Give me a fucking break. These people are putting our whole reason for doing what we do on the line. What? Ali, 2001, you've rewatched this recently, didn't you pull in a new cut, I believe? Yeah, I've always been a fan of Ali, like the theatrical cut, but just like on Blu-ray they've released like a 20-year anniversary cut of it, which is of the third attempt of man, like, you know, for his third recut, like Mohicans. And it, it's, it's kind of weird because it has a, um, it ends with a freeze frame of Muhammad Ali kind of in victory at, at the, um, the Rumble in the Jungle, but then it has like, you know, Muhammad Ali, whatever day he's born to 2018 or something or 2016 where we died, but it's like weird to have like uh, the date of death on the film after the film came oh, out. Well, so it's kind of a strange change. Oh, wow. Oh, that is really weird. I think it may be that we, because this was almost like the official uh, Ali biopic, he had approval on the script very much helping Will Smith. You know, they had lots of conversations about stuff. So, you know, it was the most involved he'd been with a film about himself other than, I suppose, the ones he's in. They want it to be like the official Ali biopic. Mm. Um, but they also cut out the What Happened Next cards during the versions I guess you watched. This was my first time seeing this one when I watched it a few weeks back and I was really blown away because, you know, I love boxer movies mm. anyway, like Bloody Love Rocky, but I, I really thought Smith brought it in this like his his mannerisms the way he held himself his voice his accent his uh, his way with words and i know paul you've like really praised the first 20 minutes of this movie before and like i definitely see that just a kind of really elongated montage with music over the top and even though it hits quite a lot of familiar biopic beats like they all really work for me and i think being able to punctuate it with incredibly shot boxing scenes really helps yeah well the opening is my favorite opening of all time oh, I, wow I really can't yeah think there of you a go. better introduction to movies yeah, yeah, I think it's spellbinding. Like, it, it can never live up to how it sets out its stall. You've got, like, Sam Cooke, you know, who was a friend of Ali's, I think, you know, contemporary, 1963, 64, where this film is set. You know, he died, he was killed in 64, I think. But it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's based on, like, a famous, like, live set he did at the Holland Square Club, where, and it's taken the medley of some of those tracks, obviously re-recorded for the movie. Um, you know, whilst this is going on, and the beat gets faster and, like, more intense and building up, 
uh, you get like our Lee training, you get him like, you know, the civil rights movement, you get him influences in his politics for the murder of Emmett Till. I think in my cut, you see his father kind of struggling to sort of his business with loads of white businessmen, that kind of stuff. You get the introduction of Jamie Foxx as his motivator, like his sort of love you know, guy's going to be in his corner. Fox is great in this. Angelo Dundee is trainer. Oh man, it's just, it's so good. And then it, it you know, builds this croissant where he comes into his first press conference. <laughs> Then you bet it on Sonny. He know I'm great. He will fall in eight. Come on, you big ugly bear. I'll whoop you right now. Two ten and a half. Two ten and a half. The challenger. Cash is played. Two hundred and ten and a half pounds. Man, you showed us right. <laughs> oh, ugly bear. Come on, let's go. You got all these folks fooled. I ain't scared of you. I ain't scared of you. Two hundred eighteen. 218, Sonny Liston, the champion of the world. 218 pounds. Pounds of what? Pounds ugly. That man's so ugly, when he sweat, the sweat run backwards off his forehead just to stay away from his face. <laughs> Come on, you big ugly bear. I'll turn you into a rug. Keep talking. I'm gonna fuck you up. It's just incredible. Uh, propulsive opening and... Uh, there's never been anything quite like it. It's just so good. And it just, it, you know, there's, there's great sequences in it, but never gets that same momentum of it again. It's an extremely uh, are, you impressive know, performance by Smith. I really think he got it bang on. Oh, yeah. He's he's brilliant in it. And he and I think um, the same way um, Jamie Foxx, like Michael Mann talks about Jamie Foxx and the way he speaks, because he's a rapper as well, but he can kind of fire off dialogue like he's singing it. Mm. Um, in the same way, Will Smith can reel off Ali's kind of like in the mind's eye. You know, he can speak as quickly as he's thinking. And I ain't draft dodging, I ain't burning no flag, and I ain't running to Canada. I'm staying right here. You want to send me to jail? Fine, you go right ahead. I've been in jail for 400 years. I could be there for four or five more. But I ain't going no 10,000 miles to help murder and kill other poor people. If I want to die, I'll die right here, right now, fighting you. If I want to die, you my enemy. Not no Chinese, no Viet Cong, no Japanese. You my poser when I want freedom. You my poser when I want justice. You my poser when I want equality. Want me to go somewhere and fight for you? You won't even stand up for me right here in America. For my rights and my religious beliefs. You won't even stand up for me right here at home. Doing that all in one tracking shot, all down from the stairs of the courthouse. And uh, it's incredible. That's that's my performance, because that's difficult to do. That is difficult. Yes. Also, John Voight, you know, madman Voight, he is... (laughs) Credible in this, you know, as the sportscaster Howard Cosell, he's got his. I, like, I got to the end and saw his name in the credits. I was like, he weren't in this movie. Who was he? Yeah. Oh, because <laughs> um, that prosthetics was just yeah, unrecognizable. Yeah, he's definitely Cosell himself is in um, an early Woody Allen called Bananas, playing himself, and he's sport, he's sportscasting on a uh, an execution by some Banana Republic, where they're they're taking out the old president to be shot, and he's like, and here comes the president kneeling down, like, and it's it, it's amazing. And then in the last scene, he's doing a um, sort of blow by blow account of Woody Allen trying to get off with like this girl in in, in bed, and sort of about the performance. And it's like, yeah, sometimes the performance like there's lacks a little bit there, and it's so funny. And, uh, but you know, but because I because I heard him talk in that movie, I was like, boy, yeah. it down. Wow. It's pitch perfect. And you get a lovely sort of like the the friendship between the two men is. It's so beautiful, isn't it? Like, yes, it is very, very Yeah, the kind of gentle done. ribbing going on, it's, it's lovely. So, so Ali, I think, you know, it, it sort of 
it, it, the, the, man, the man's too big to be in one movie, isn't he? The, the, yes. He's such a legend yeah. and such an icon. It's difficult to have a film that lives up to it. It comes mm. mighty close, but I don't think it's... Um, you know, I like it, but I can see why people just don't enjoy it because it's kind of is a bit biopicy, and I, biopics are hard to kind of make really good um, for me. I think it's pretty great. Man's really. I think it's pretty great. I think if people don't appreciate it, um, you know, I agree with you that like, I think Ali is too big for one film. I think there's a great documentary to be made, like about Ali. I mean, obviously there is when we were kings. Uh, which is about the Kings, genre, yeah, but there's probably awesome. a more complete documentary or even documentary series maybe coming. But I think as a kind of snapshot biopic, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty fucking great. I think very inventive. Well, yeah, I think Man, like you know, he he he's really interested in the era because the era that he kind of like grew up in as well. You know, he might not be struggling the same way as the principles in this movie, but. You know, he's interested in kind of the um, the CIA, like in the Malcolm X surveillance, you know, that kind of thing. And so there's a lot of t- screen time kind of t- to Malcolm X and to that kind of like um, political machinations. And even more so in this longer cut. Well, it's not it's actually the shortest cut, the newest one, but it's it's more kind of political kind of in its in its setup. And, you know, so people go, well, that's not a one out of my Muhammad Bali Ali biopic, you know, so it's it's playing a dangerous game really with that, you know, where you're trying to release mm. kind of something that's going to be like the crowd pleaser with the R. Kelly, you know, hit single, World's Greatest. Wait, World's um, Greatest? World's Greatest yeah. was written for Ali? Yes, it's not in any of the film or in any credits. Was but it's, it, it was, it, it was, it, it's on the soundtrack album. Oh, wow. Because I knew that that, that yeah. song was obviously yeah. about Ali, but I didn't realise that it was actually for the film. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Music inspired by. Yeah. I've got both albums of Ali. Oh, wow. I love the music in it so much. <laughs> Not that song, though. Yeah, he can get to fuck. So, next up is Collateral, uh, which you said is your favourite, uh, bruv. It's, it's definitely up there. It's in the top three uh, for me, certainly. Yeah, it's it's easily my favourite because it's such like a pulpy story. Like, this one's really driven by script and performances. It's, it's a tight two-hander for most of it. We've got Tom Cruise playing against type for one of the only times of his life. Mm-hmm. Like I'd argue maybe Magnolia as well was going against his image. Uh, but here is a, is a properly proper villain character here. But the friendship he builds with Jamie Foxx, who's, who's back for his second or three man appearances, is fantastic. Cruise rocks the grey fox look like oh, no one else. Um, it, we got the Apart from me. one of the first and best instances of the digital LA nighttime photography looking amazing. Some great song choices throughout, but it's, it's the propulsiveness of the script and the way everything that's slowly set up in the first act comes back to pay off later on. And well, it, oh, it was the yeah. first one I saw in the cinema with you, I believe, Paul, back in yes, 04. Yes, I remember this. This is our first Orbithodium. one we actually see together, yeah, uh, in 2004. Yep. And it did look, I mean, it, on the on a print, it didn't look great at times as well because it's those days mm. where digitally shot films were printed back onto film. And it looked odd at times, and yeah. I think I think it actually had its D- D- DCP premiere not that long ago, maybe about its tenth anniversary. Uh, well, that's quite that's, that's quite a while ago now, or fifteenth anniversary, where Man like had a retrospective. He said this is the first time it's getting shown the way it was shot in the cinema, nice. you know, uh, where it could be properly timed to the digital. But it was like, yeah, we you know you got away from like the weirdness of seeing some of the video blur. But the, the shots at night, you're just going, no, this is something else, the way it looks. I love the, the, reading about the development of the screenplay, which began life as a New York set piece uh, and more in the vein of After Hours, like by Martin Scorsese, a bit more of a crazy kind of like um, 
sort of you know weird weird events like you know vignettes over one night and it's more and i believe that all the right decisions are made to transfer it to la and kind of make it more you know a straight thriller but i think this is a comedy like i always said this is man's fa- funniest film yeah it is really i think funny. it's it's absolutely hilarious yeah it's you know and if you, if you watch it like a comedy like with these two bickering you know the old couple you got yeah. jamie fox and the guy who's got the gun on him that shot where Cruz finally tempts Fox to be his cabbie just like fans out yeah. the cash. <laughs> yeah. It's so awesome. And the bit even yeah, when, absolutely. when they when their car crashes, that they, they fight like little girls, like between each other when they're in yeah, the that's yeah. really funny. <laughs> that's the bit I was remembering as well, yeah. It's really <laughs> funny. We're trying to hit him with like some little thing that's come out, like trying to whack him on the head. Like you say, it was the, this it, this turning point, a man was a pioneer in terms of using kind of digital um, you know, in that way. And now, you know, because of the fact that it, it wasn't long before Da Vinci Code started pioneering kind of, you know, a more digital filmic look in terms of the idea was now to make digital look as close to film as they possibly could. This is mm. kind of, you know, an outlier along with Miami Vice and Public Enemies and stuff like that, where man was still very much experimenting in that very digital look. And I love it because it looks it looks so different from everything else and gives such a different feel, a different texture, which I absolutely love. Yeah, it is. It's the immediacy of things, isn't it? It's like it feels like it's actually happening. So whilst, yes. you know, some people can give it the soap opera effect or where, you know, let's say the 60 frames per second and everything looks like it's shot on ITV drama premiere, too sharp, everything's in focus, It's just, everything's kind of happening very far. You know, and you and the artificiality is like really there this kind of embraces that but you know you know you're not looking at something cheap mm. you're looking at something that's kind of stylistically done that way and they're kind of leaning into the digital kind of like kind of the cops caught on the street kind of like actually you're in the moment mm. this is mm. like a camera that's sort of just over the shoulder of people at, at times you know the shootout in Miami Vice that's like cops on acid I remember it being described as where there's kind of it doesn't feel like the camera, you know, was perfectly framed. You know, there's there's blood on the on the lens or something like that, isn't there? In one shot, and it kind of like goes all crystallized, doesn't it? Yes. I think, you know, yeah. with all the mm. all the lights. Yeah. So there's kind of that going on. I've, I I just think Cruz is hilarious in this movie, though. Your homie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Cruz is he's, he's fucking masterful in this film. And, and Fox, I, I love Fox in it because he plays against type in the movie. We've got a guy who's effortlessly cool. Uh, in general and here he's playing a schlub and he completely convinces yeah and not on the level of Electro in Amazing Spider-Man 2 where he yeah, goes yeah. full I mean, that schlub is, yeah, never, Electro in Sp- Amazing Spider-Man 2 is a case of never go full schlub that's Batman and Robin level of uh, performance yeah, completely, there, so. completely. Well, he's just he's being uh, Jim Carrey as Edward Nigma in Batman Forever isn't he completely yeah. so yeah Collateral I think is, is a super incredible pulp masterpiece of a film I think it's absolutely amazing I love the shootout in the in the nightclub that's an uh, amazing yeah, sequence yeah, Paul um, yeah. and another um, actor who's called borderline unrecognisable in this of course is Mark Ruffalo as the cop who's yeah, yeah. hunting him and Javier Bardem of course who I wouldn't have known at the no, time no, so. I wouldn't have known either yeah. yeah Bardem you got Jason Statham oh, yeah oh Statham cameo You okay? Yeah, I'm fine, mate. Don't worry about it. You all right? Enjoy your life. I've got to say, seeing Statham at the beginning of that film, 
really makes me want man to do a film with Statham because I, I feel like Statham fits Michael Mann's world so well. I think he would, I think with Statham's one of those actors that, yes, of course, he does loads of low rent stuff, but I think when he's placed with the right directors, he can do really, really good stuff. Like, I adore him. In... Yeah, he could be the action action Adam Sandler. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And I would well, Adam yeah. Sandler, who was originally meant to play Jamie Foxx's role in this film, ah, yeah, which is, which is crazy um, that he, he didn't. I mean, that would have been interesting, certainly. I could it, it, I could see it working. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah so I like I. that. I mean, we know that Sandler can act when he wants to at the end of the day. Mm. But I would love yeah. to see a proper old school man thief style film with Statham. I think that would be really fucking cool. We talked about Man Vice already, like you know, and the reasons you know we kind of we kind of like it. Matt, you saw it. You gave it three stars this time. What was kind of a three, what, three what and a half? Three and a half. Good. Three and a half. And a half. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's. I really, I really enjoy it. I think it just falls for me mid-table on the on the man ladder, just because of his his more accomplished stuff. I found new things to enjoy about the Miami Vice movie that I didn't previously, which I was surprised by. But also, it, it kind of just feels. I don't know. It feels very mid-table to me. Like it's not a bad film, and I do think it's underrated. And I know the three of us love it so much. But like, yeah, I don't know. It feels feels a bit. I don't know. It's there's something holding it back for me from it being really strong. And I think it I- might be the the distance it gives you deliberately by giving it that kind of TV feel as if you are just popping in for a few hours with these characters who you're not really meant to get to know, you're just meant to kind of spend some time with and, and, and t- take from that your own uh, observation. So it's a really interesting way of tackling a kind of drug thriller. But it does do a lot of cool stuff. It's very, very mid naughty It's got a great soundtrack as well. Like There's so, so many songs from here that are just embedded into my head from that time yeah. period. Probably yeah. because we just listened to the soundtrack I, on I, loop. I, I definitely think you know it's um it's a film that I you know do love. But I also can appreciate where people have problems with it because it is difficult to sort of get away from the fact it is quite inaccessible. Mm. The, the, the it's man kind of leaning into his most you know techno babble. You know it's very kind of like yeah. um, uh, procedural. You know you're not really getting given any kind yeah. of like way in. And you know there well, isn't, there really isn't much of a, gritty, of a kind so. of like buddy sort. Of, you don't get a real sense of friendship between the two leads. And I think a lot of that may be to do with. You know the fact that Farrell was strung out on drugs all the time. It's amazing they got a hero nice. performance. I mean, I mean, I love his performance, yeah, in it, but it's just yeah. like yeah. And you got Jamie Fox, who's like at his most uh, diva esque that he's ever been. I mean, refusing to come back to the set to do the new fin- the finale, which was meant to be in um, South America, but there was gunshots on set, so him him and his entourage got the fuck out of Dodge and wouldn't come back. <laughs> There's a hurricane that destroyed that disrupted this filming in Miami, but I think the edit is a bit muddled in places. Liam, you love the unrated cut, which kind of expands a few scenes, don't you? But um... yeah, I, I love the unrated cut because I think it kind of adds enough back in to just make it kind of followable. And also, uh, it's weird. <laughs> I think it, it, I love it, and I, I think it's a weird film that's kind of made for the tiniest niche audience imaginable because the people I think it appeals to are people like you and me, Paul, where. We're fans of Miami Vice, the original show, uh, mostly because of the Michael Mann-esque influence over it. Elements, but Because yeah. we've watched that, yeah. we know everything about Miami Vice already. We know the characters and the setup and everything. We know all that stuff. And then we adore Michael Mann and his style. So we come to Miami Vice, the movie, and we already know where we are and the characters and the relationships because we've already seen them. So we fill in all of those blanks. We don't need them coloured in because we're like, oh yeah, that's Crockett, that's Tubbs, 
that's their team, that's their relationship, we already know it's fine, uh, we know what they do, and then we adore the man's style as well, so literally we're just like, oh, we're fine, yeah. we can follow this, it's no problem. But I think if you're if you're not watched Miami Vice, and also you're not a big fan of Michael Mann and his style either, because I think you need both, you're not going to get on particularly well yeah. with it, you know what I mean? No, no, yeah, it can be cold at best, <laughs> and it's yeah. like, you know... It, but luckily for us, it's great. Yeah, so oh, I, I, I prefer the theatrical cut just a bit. I, I think just because the opening, the cold open in the club to Jay Num Encore is untouchable as a as an opening, yes. and I don't think the boat chase or the boat sort of race adds anything to that, uh, except just kind of like um, yeah, it just slows it down. I think it, I just love the drop in there. But there are scenes they do add in which I much prefer. Like I do like there's you know, more about um, Trudy and Tarb's relationship and, you know, th- that kind of stuff in the middle mm. that is really indispensable. So it's kind of a shame there's not like a, uh, you know, an, a third version, you know. <laughs> well, not, yeah, that would be, be good. No man. Yeah. 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 And I do like that open so, yeah. boat race sequence just because it's, it's it, you could tell they spent a bit of money on it and it looks fucking cool. I like it. It looks great, but it'd be one of the best deleted scenes yes, ever, but yeah, not, yeah, I don't yeah, think it should yeah. be in the movie. And it's all, and it's love, it's in the trailers, you know, the trailer's full of stuff, not in oh the movie God, like that. So and, many uh, yeah. more amazing trailer lines in those trailers than any other film ever. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's so many killer lines in the trailers <gasps> that aren't in the movie. Why? Uh, yeah, and, it, and I just really think there is a cut that has all of this cool stuff in yeah. it. You know, less of like you know the techno babble, just stick more people saying cool shit in, and I'll be it'll be I'll be happy about me. So it's I I just I, literally I can't fathom why those like there's literally about five or six amazing badass lines of those chains that aren't in the film, and I don't know why. Like I really have no idea. Are you afraid of violence? We get down. If the play calls for it, bud. We're here for business. That's right. We can close each other's eyes right now real fast. Then ain't nobody gonna make no money. This is Detective Crockett, Miami-Dade PD. We got him. No one has ever tread before where we are now. We're seeing their operations from the inside. Your agency cannot know how they do whatever it is they do. Take it to the limit one more time. Public enemies, which I am the big apologist for. Yeah, well, you are, but I have to say, like, I, I saw it in cinemas, I think, hadn't seen it since, did the rewatch on Netflix, and I, I was surprised by how much I dug it. Like, I think the the jarringness of the digital photography for a period film was worn off a bit, or maybe it just suited the small screen better, but I found the whole plot, like, really propulsive, all the bank robberies yeah. are badass. It's like, this is like man going, hey, you say I'm known for bank robberies from heat, well, let's go back to, like, prime 1930s America when they were all the rage, yeah. motherfucker. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's some Completely, great stuff. In yeah, there. I, I agree. And as you know, uh, for me, the use of the digital look for period for me is just felt so fresh, so vibrant. Still does because no one's done that since. It's the uniqueness yeah. of it that I, that I love in terms of that approach, deliberately going against having to be boring and fusty uh, and so still for a period yeah. of time and just go, no, I'm going to just go fucking shoot it like I do my other movies. It's kind of, it's kind of really like, a, it's kind of really immediate yes. as well, isn't it? Not in the kind of green grass shaky cam way, but it can get like handheld and in your face and feel like you're suddenly in the middle of like a docu yeah. or something. Like there's that kind of shootout in the cabin which leads to the, the foot chase where you've got Steven 
Stephen Graham like going crazy for Tommy Gunn and the camera's right over his shoulder at times or right in his face and it just feels like you're There's there. There's a fluidity it's crazy. to it. It feels like you're literally being transported yeah. back in time watching it because you feel like you're there. And I, I do think, yeah. you know, Depp, I know he's had his troubles, but I do think he's very good in that film. And, yeah, and Stephen Lang, of course, doing an incredible cameo back in again that movie. uh he's so badass. yes yeah it's great it's the texas like hired marshal isn't yes. he sort of yeah, it's yeah, great yeah. and yeah. bale's good in it as well i mean i just love the way he delivers the line these men are hard killers <laughs> yeah yeah bale's very good i mean it's one of those things where i think yeah. it's a shame they don't have more stuff together in the movie uh, apart from that one scene yeah. uh yeah. i don't think i don't think that device of keeping them apart works as well as it does in heat in Heat, it, it works yeah. so, so beautifully. But in this, it kind of feels a little bit clunky that they're kept apart so much. But, you know, I still re- I love the movie. I think it's, think it's fucking great. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's almost adhering to, you know, real facts to its detriment. Yes. You know, they yeah, could yeah. have maybe pushed that, you know, smoothed off the edges a little bit and have more of a kind of like Vincent mm. Hanna, Macaulay kind of like, you know, takedown. Print the legend. So, you know, if it does is missing that, yeah. yeah, it just yeah. Print the legend. Unfortunately, the legend's too well known, isn't it? So it's just like you can't really go too off, yeah, far off it. Yeah. It's got some amazing things in it. Like I, 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 I find it hard to love this one, um, just because I don't have the same kind of like uh, immediate kind of love for the for the look of it. And I do feel this is the. I know you talk about the immediacy of like being in the action. I just feel this time it felt like less, like the the choreography of the sequences, the action was a little bit more. Um, f- muddled for me I don't know just my take on it is that I didn't feel like I knew where I was in a lot of the shots and it felt like he was literally shooting from the hip a bit more and I don't think it was the, the same mm-hmm. Michael Mann who was like so precise that we'd seen before in his other films and, and also I think it, if I recall this one's got some really terribly recorded dialogue um, in it as well so you can barely make out what people are saying I mean that was a, a big criticism level of Vice that it, you know the ADR job on it was was, was a bit woeful at times um, and that's it's even worse in parts of Public Enemies. I'm thinking like this is a major motion picture. There's no excuse for not hearing everything everybody's saying. Moving on to Black Hat, it's even worse for me. It just feels like absolute shit show in terms of the uh, production value of this film. Um, yeah, was this everybody's first viewing of Black Hat? No, no I seen it twice years ago. We were both. Yeah, yeah, we watched it. I, I got. I de- well, it never it hadn't been released, so I got like a download yeah. of it, like filled up the projector. There was no subtitles for any of the Chinese dialogue, oh, yeah. though, so we had to kind of work that out. Um, so I've never seen it with the with the subtitles for the Chinese dialogue, but I don't think I'm missing much. Uh, it's not going to make the difference, no. No, uh, but I do remember recalling like how badly put together it was. Like the music, yeah, I think the music was thrown out as well. Like he, it was scored by somebody else, and that was all thrown out, and then it was rescored at the last minute. I found it very unengaging. There's like a few moments of flashes of genius towards the end. I think in the way a few sequences are kind of staged, but. I don't know. I think I know Chris Hemsworth himself has voiced displeasure with it, saying like, "I tried something new and it didn't quite work for me." And it's interesting yeah. seeing him do a, a new film now, Extraction, which is kind of like, well, it's not really similar, but it's it's kind of espionage action in an in, in Eastern climate kind of thing. So he's it's obviously not that that he had issues with. I think it might have been maybe his character or the way he was directed. Who knows? But well, yeah, I think he's not quite was... as comfortable in it. So. Yeah, though this was recut like before released by the studio who wanted the meltdown at the power plant up front and that was like there's been a, a director's cut shown only once at his uh at his kind of um retrospective at MoMA, I think, where it's like put puts mm. all the events in the right order. 
I don't think that's going to make it much difference. It feels like actually who's calling the shots here? Is it man or is the studio kind of like, you know, too more powerful these days, you know, and he hasn't got the clout to kind of like handle these big movies, you know, without interference. And it's a shame because, you know, there's so much more he could do on a medium-sized budget movie, you know, without the stakes of, like, people like Chris Hensworth in it and needing to compete in that kind of marketplace. It's just like choosing Black Hat was a strange one, um, and we've not seen him do anything since. You know, there's been a lot of scripts, you know, that he's been working on, like the um, Ferrari movie, Enzo Ferrari, which was Bale, turned into Ford versus Ferrari, which I've not seen yet, but I will. It's very good. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, he gets a producer credit, man on it, obviously. Yeah, no, Agincourt, he was circling as well, which is a, a book, it's sort of one of those kind of books. I think it's Bernard Cromwell, who does loads of kind of historical kind of action-y fiction, a bit like uh, Flashman, but about the about the humour uh, and about the Battle of Agincourt, which I think was going to be, you know, it's about an archer. And, it, you know, again, if you think about man protagonist, somebody who's like the best in his field going into like the the, the biggest battle in history that's ever won with, with arrows, you know, that would be um, quite, quite a cool movie, I think. Uh, but that never came to anything. There was um, the Chicago like um, mob movie as well he was going to do. Never came to anything. So there's been lots of like sort of false starts really. Tokyo Vice is coming yeah, up. Yeah, Tokyo That's Vice, a production which is a big new kind. Of, I think this is uh, HBO Max, isn't it? Don't know what that uh, is. HBO but Max is, good. is Warner Brothers' <laughs> big streaming service. It's their big uh, push right. into, into the streaming service vibe, and I'm pretty sure that's for that. I think. Uh, which which has got um, yeah. Baby Driver in the lead. Well, we, we haven't mentioned uh, Unlucky, um, oh, Dustin no. Hoffman. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I've never seen it. Have yeah. you seen it? I saw the pilot, the Michael Mann pilot. Was it good? Um, I just wasn't interested, really. I just, I'm just not interested in horse racing and uh, that kind of stuff. I mean, it's got some good cast. You've got Hoffman, Farina, one of his last mm. roles. Um, Nick Nolte looking old as fuck. <laughs> uh, I mean, you always walk, does walk in the woods, Nolte. Um, I haven't yeah, seen it. Yeah, it's, it just it's didn't HBO, grab me. It's man. It's Hoffman. Like you know, I'm. Uh, I'd be interested in watching it. And Milch, you love Milch. Yeah, it's Milch. Is it Milch? Well. I mean, there's a lot of talent involved. I'd be interested in watching it. Why haven't you seen this? This sounds like right up your street. Uh, but you know, they did kill a lot of horses. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, Not enough, I say. They shoot horses, don't yeah, they? Yeah, you know, uh, to get it made. But um, but yeah, I will. I definitely check it out at some point. Certainly, this might be it. Like in terms, of will will man ever direct again? I mean, it's twenty fifteen. Black Cat. We well, seventy seven. Yeah, seventy seven. Um, I think he's. You know, yeah, he's due another one. He's got to to move on it quickly. Hopefully he's Um, got one more in him, at least. It would be a shame to leave it on Black Cat. I don't hate it in the way that you do. I think it's fine. I don't don't hate it. You just don't like seeing somebody you really revere and, like, respect kind of, like, start to kind of lose it and having a really rough patch and, you know, go experimental, but it's just not working out. And but then persevering with that, like doubling down on the things you're saying, these aren't working. Like the poor ADR, yeah. the the you know, for me the the visual like aspect. I know it's different for you, but Black Hat, you must admit, looked like shit. Um, and it's you know, it, it just feels like oh, the the road you've chosen. Look at the '90s films, and they're so beautiful. They yeah. some of the best shot films you've ever seen, and now it just looks like garbage. It's <laughs> definitely his weakest <laughs> film. I mean that that's uh, that's undoubted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I and it just you know and perhaps I don't want him to sully his legacy anymore. But it's uh, um, yeah, I do want to see more by him. I've always wanted to see more by him. I would be there yeah. 
with bells on if he if he directs again this is for sure like yes I, I, will, I just really I hope Black Cat's an off day. day if there was another man film 100% I really like. I say maybe look, maybe step, maybe it's well, time it's to get stable. Be, it's got to be good enough to get released in the cinema. We would have been in line to see Black Hat. Just it never got released in the UK yeah, cinemas very, because very it was true, so shit. Yeah. Like that's. Um, I mean, I'm yeah. sad. Miami Vice Two never happened. Well, I think I think well, Farrell <laughs> went straight to the. It didn't go to the rap party. It went straight to rehab, and I think that tells you all there needs to know about Miami Vice Two, <laughs> like ever happening. I mean, I tell you what, I would love to see him do a big screen version of Crime Story. I think that was what it was. I think that was that was something in that era. Um, so it was going to be kind of Chicago mob. It's sort of mid-century crime saga would be well up. Yeah, well I, up I'd be that. well up for an epic crime story big screen remake now. Uh, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that'd be amazing. But, you know, we, we've, we've talked all night about man. <laughs> you know, this was a bit of an experiment for us. We're all on lockdown at the moment. This is our first ever recorded remotely lockdown episode. We don't even know if it's going to have been successful yet. We might have just waffled on about man's filmography to each other <laughs> all night. We'll have to see. We'll have to listen back to these recordings and see. How it's a win-win. It win. It's a win-win. I've enjoyed um, it. Like, but I, yeah, but I've enjoyed yeah. it anyway. I've enjoyed just kind of talking Michael Mann with two of my best mates in the world all night. Uh, Matt, it's like 2006 all over again. And, and, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, 2006. Oh, yeah, although we're not trying to make our own Michael <laughs> Mann film this time. You know, I mean, you, you... <laughs> well, yeah, lads, this this has been great. Like, cause I, cause I, I, I did not plan to do a manathon, and but when I realised we were doing this episode and we didn't have a date locked in, I was like, I can do it. Yeah, we will be back uh, with another episode of Spotlight. Um, we've got a few things coming up. Picard, uh, spoiler special. We're still gonna do that. You know, we we are just gonna have to see where the cards land in regards to uh, moving forward uh, in terms of recording remotely. I cannot wait to be back in a room with you guys and actually doing this properly. You know, the whole reason we started this podcast was to make sure we, we kept meeting up on the regs and, you know, it makes me sad that we're reduced to this. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> Well, I think the last time I saw you in person, Liam, was when we did the recording with been, James yeah, Dyer, yeah, right? When and on then, yeah. then when we recorded with James Dyer at the Barrow Media Empire offices, we were all joking about the coronavirus. We were all going like, "Ah, yeah, who's laughing this now? Is, this is just a big joke, yeah. It's all fine. Like, oh, maybe we shouldn't shake hands. Ah, well, who's yeah, laughing exactly. now? Well, yeah, actually had to edit a joke out of that episode." where Matt joked that Paul died of coronavirus <laughs> like, uh, because this is a time where you could make <laughs> jokes like that and it was fine, <laughs> whereas now, not the case. This time being like I know, less than two I months know, ago. It is, it is mind-boggling, mind-boggling. But like I say, hopefully this comes Madness. together okay. You know, we will we will find a way to keep episodes coming to you. You can find us at Spotlight Pod on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we'll have all the latest updates for you in terms of what we are doing when we are recording there. And, you know, there is literally, there's almost 70 episodes of Back Catalogue now available for you to listen through. And there's lots of actual Star Trek stuff in that as well. It's not, it's not, it's not almost <laughs> 70 episodes of Michael Mann. 
we we assure you, although <laughs> we there saved is all for the one in crime story discussion in our best of both worlds episode. But apart from that, and we did the Tony Scott special yes, too. Tony Scott so special yeah, well at one point. But yeah, I, I guess all, all that's left is to say uh, goodbye from me. Yeah, goodbye from me, Paul. Goodbye, goodbye from me, live man. long and prosper, people. Live long and prosper. Yeah.